In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The winning and the delivery of our Lord's salvation are separate, and they must remain so. For if they are together, that means that Jesus both won and delivered salvation on that cross almost 2,000 years ago. And you cannot go to that place and time in order to receive it. If you today went to the place where Jesus was crucified, you would not find his cross nor his blood being shed. If salvation is delivered where Jesus won it, then the sacrifice is complete, but you need to go to that place. And the only way anyone today can go to the cross is in one's memory or imagination. Or there's the way that Roman Catholics believe that their priests sacrifice Jesus on the altar and his body and blood are then given out from that place. This solves the problem of getting Jesus delivered to you, but then it turns his sacrifice into something that must be repeated over and over. And in this way, the sacrifice of Jesus is, in some sense, not complete. But you know what Jesus says from his cross. He says it is finished. He is the only perfect substitute, and his sacrifice is complete. Upon the cross, Jesus pays for the sins of the whole world, winning salvation for all people of every time and place. But the benefits of that salvation, that is, the forgiveness of sins, is delivered to sinful man throughout time. And this is true even from the very beginning. Immediately after the fall into sin, the Lord God made garments of skin and clothed Adam and Eve. Thus blood is shed and their shame is covered. By that first sacrifice, the benefits of Jesus' death and resurrection are delivered unto them. And so it is for all the Old Testament sacrifices. The Lord instituted that those animal sacrifices delivered the forgiveness that Jesus wins. They were real sacrifices. And those who believed the promise that God had attached to them also received the real forgiveness contained in that promise. Real animal, real sacrifice, real blood, real forgiveness. The sacrifices also taught what was necessary for salvation, that no man could save himself, for by his own fault he deserved only temporal and eternal punishment. Every sinner deserved to be that lamb burned up on the altar. But God, in his mercy, gives a substitute, so sinful man would not die eternally. And so those sacrifices, real as they were, they had to be repeated over and over, day by day and year by year. For although they were very real, they did not have the power of complete forgiveness in and of themselves. These Old Testament sacrifices forgave sin, but they also pointed toward a better sacrifice, 
a sacrifice to end all sacrifices. These Old Testament Christians knew all of this. They knew that a lamb's blood couldn't wash a conscience clean. But they trusted it was the way that God had given for them to receive the forgiveness won by Jesus. So this is what Jesus observes with his disciples as they celebrate the Passover. The Passover meal was about the event where the Lord accepted the sacrifice of a lamb so that the firstborn son of each family would not die. Christians painted the lamb that shed blood on their doorway, and their families were delivered from the angel of death as he passed over their homes. And so also on that night, the Lord delivered them from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. So also according to God's institution, these Old Testament Christians commemorated this event year after year. They remembered what the Lord had done for them. But it was more than a mere memory for them. For listen to what the Lord says in Deuteronomy. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Notice the pronoun there, we were slaves in Egypt. So it was that by this yearly celebration of this feast, the Israelites are reminded that they are included in the Lord's rescue. In the Passover, then, Jesus delivers to them, through the Lamb, what he himself wins for them on the cross. These lambs sacrificed year after year at Passover pointed to another lamb. And so it was when the thing that they pointed to finally came, they are no longer useful in that way. Now there are no more sacrifices needed for sin because their fulfillment has come. Now I know some of you have gone to places like the Grand Canyon or or other beautiful places and But when you can't be there, though, a a picture could perhaps substitute. But when you stand in front of the real thing, when it's right before your eyes, the picture is kind of useless. Can you imagine someone going all the way to the Grand Canyon? He drives up to it, gets out of the car, walks over to the edge, and takes out a book of Grand Canyon pictures and sits there never raising his eyes to the majestic scene in front of him. Or how many of you would go and visit a relative only to spend the entire time looking at a picture and not actually talking to your loved one. So you know that types and shadows and pictures are no longer needed when you have the real thing. That's why Old Testament Christians observe the Passover But New Testament Christians don't. Because we see the Passover is fulfilled in Jesus. That means the Passover itself is only a picture. Nor do we observe a kind of representation of the Passover, which would sort of be a picture of a picture. And so what Jesus celebrates with his disciples on that Thursday evening is the last valid Passover. 
For now he fulfills and transforms it. From that old meal he institutes a new meal, a meal that is no mere picture. It's the real thing. Jesus isn't giving a sign pointing to something else. In this meal, he gives the forgiveness of sins. That's why he says, is. And so it's not a different or better forgiveness than what the Old Testament Christians had, but it's something that they didn't receive directly. But then we might ask, why us? Why was this meal not given to the Christians of the Old Testament? Well, consider what Jesus gives you in this sacrament, bread and wine, which are his body and blood. Until the Christ has become incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the second person of the Holy Trinity doesn't have body and blood to give. In order to give you body and blood, he needs body and blood. And this also means that Jesus can't be human temporarily. He must retain his humanity permanently. He must be inseparably man and God, human and divine. And this is what he gives to you according to his institution and testimony. This is the last will and testament of Jesus. And no one is authorized to change the testament once the testator has died. When he died, it went into effect. And so you look to see whether you are included in this will, and what will you be given? You hear the words and trust the promise, and thus you hold tightly to the words, because you want to receive exactly what Jesus bestows. Now imagine being in the will of a wealthy loved one, and you find that you are in the will. It's probably cause for rejoicing and perhaps even a party. But then, as the will is read, you find that you aren't given the the mansion or the car or the pile of money. Instead of any of those things, all you get is a photograph of them. And the photo wasn't even framed. So how disappointing would it be if Jesus only left us a memory of his body and blood, or if he gave us his body and blood and we only remembered it as a memory. Now, today has long been called Maundy Thursday. Maundy is from the Latin mandatum, meaning mandate or command. For it is on this night, as we heard in our gospel, that Jesus commands his Christians to have complete sacrificial love. He commands them to love as he has loved. And so observe this night how your Lord loves. On this night he lays aside his outer garment and dresses like a servant, a common slave. And then not only dressed like a servant, he acts like one, taking each disciple's feet, washing and drying them. Peter would have prevented it. No, Jesus, stop. You're embarrassing me. This isn't your job. Jesus, I don't want you to see all the dirt on my stinky feet. I don't want you to touch my toe jam and get that dirt on you. It's beneath you, Jesus. 
My God and my Savior isn't supposed to do that. He isn't supposed to be that up close and personal with me, able to see and know all my faults and failures. But Jesus says to Peter, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And so Peter, ever sort of a pendulum in a way, responds, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Now, Jesus says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. You see, Jesus here shows what kind of love he has by washing his disciples' feet. You know that he has also washed you. He has gotten up close and personal with each one of you, close enough to see all of your sin and your failure. Like Peter, you have been made clean. You were washed in holy baptism and received his name upon you. And so you are clean. But then, also, like Peter, you've been walking around in some dusty places. You come to Jesus to make you clean again, and Jesus keeps you clean. He continues to clean you by loving you, by handing over his forgiveness and his life to you. But the Christian hope isn't just to get things from Jesus, isn't just to get sort of his forgiveness and life given to us and to keep Jesus at arm's length, but to be with him. So that's why he gives his life for yours. And that's why he wants to put his life into you. This is a profound and and a precious gift. And as St. Paul explains, it comes with a powerful warning. Because something has gone wrong in Corinth. The preaching about the Lord's Supper has been absent. The church there had come together to receive what Jesus gives at the altar. But they treated the sacrament as no better than an ordinary meal. In fact, in a sense, even less than an ordinary meal. Because when they were together, some got drunk, others got nothing. They neglected the weak and the poor among them. They celebrated an unrepentant public sinner in their midst. And by their abuse of the Lord's gifts, they deprived themselves of his blessing. So that's why Paul exhorts you to examine yourself. Are you bearing a grudge? Are you holding on to sins that you love? Do you despise what Christ gives you here? Now, no one but you and God can see any of these things because they are inside your hearts. Now, if you come with, a, with an openly sinful life or you belong to a different confession, then that's, that's public. And, and I, will, I will stop you from communing to your harm. But if you come as a willful hypocrite, no one will stop you. And receiving Jesus' body and blood will hurt you. And so we thus examine ourselves, not to make ourselves clean and deserving of Christ, 
Not to get rid of all our sins before we come to Jesus. No one can do that. But so that when you come, you come with faith. Believing Jesus is going to take away your sin. Even the ones that you can't seem to get rid of. Even the ones that you love. Because Jesus is giving you what is good. He's delivering the benefits of his cross to you in this place. Here, Jesus gives his whole self to you, not just a part of him. And he gives himself to all of you, not just part of you. So Jesus here hands over his last will and testament to you. So come with confidence because of what Jesus gives. Come because of his command and promise. Come because your faith is little and weak. Come and learn how Jesus loves you. Come also because he also gives you the commandment to love your neighbors. And that is what he teaches you here. Now, maybe this command to love seems like Jesus is just adding another requirement to you. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It is the good life. And so if you see that you cannot do what he commands, if you find yourself frail and weak, if your faith seems small, if you are unable to love as Christ does, then come and be filled with the body and blood of Jesus. Receive his love for you, given and poured out for you. Tomorrow, we will see something of the darkness of Jesus' death. And yet it is a day for rejoicing. For the Lord has taken the gifts that he won on the cross and handed them over to us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You prepare a table before me, your cup overflows. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. In the holy name of Jesus. Amen. The peace of God keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord.